Hello, welcome back everyone to this podcast. We are going to be getting into a very important chapter, chapter three, Numinous Values. This is chapter three of the book, Invaluable, Achieving Clarity on Value. So uh, first, we're going to get into the story in which this chapter begins with, because I found it very interesting. Um, It says, a sage by the name of Kaushika lived near a forest. The sage had taken a vow to always tell the truth. One day, some people fleeing rock. Some people fleeing robbers entered that forest. A little later, the robbers arrived in hot pursuit and saw Kaushika. Knowing his reputation for truth-telling, they asked him to reveal where their quarry had gone in the name of truth. He pointed to the forest, and with his information, the robbers found and killed the people they were chasing, robbing them of their belongings as well. Kashika had made a huge error of judgment due to a lack of understanding of morality. Um, I, this story really stood out to me because it, it, it made me think of um, kind of like the moral dilemma people would have talking about uh, the Holocaust, for example, um, when you know you're, you're supposed to not lie, but if you are hiding someone that's trying to escape the Nazis, do you lie? You know? Um, and, and, th- and this example is kind of like that. It's like, where is that basis of morality? Uh, what, why did this story stand out as something that you wanted to start out with? This is actually setting the stage for a very important exploration. You see, when we talk about decision-making, the basis of knowing you're making a good decision is clarity on value, okay? So so the premise, and this is not new, the premise of decision analysis is, hey, we start with our values, we, we look at alternatives, we look at all the information we have, we put it all together, and we come out with a good decision. Whether or not the outcome is good is a different question. Now, the the big question underlying this framework is the idea of value. Like we, what is value? And how do you know that what you have declared as your value is the right value to have? And there you will find our, the field of decision analysis to which I belong, and also economics, they pretty much don't have a strong point of view. They, they, the view is somehow somebody does miraculous uh, heavy lifting figures out their values and you're not supposed to question them. You're supposed to optimize take it as given. And this was the piece that I found deeply unsatisfactory because, you know, it's like there are certain things, certain uh, pointers we get when somebody's telling you, hey, I value this. I want to be able to engage in that juicy dialogue. And I also want to do it in a non-judgmental way and I want to ask myself, what are the principles by which we can have this conversation in an egalitarian manner where nobody's feeling like somebody's judging them with a big stake, but we are thinking about some powerful principles that help us question, are these the right values for us? This is one of the most important questions we hold, because if we can't answer this question, then the whole foundation is shaky. So this is at the heart of the conversation of good decision making. Excellent. Yeah, because um, it says on um, top of 98, um, when it was talking about uh, Krishna giving a a remarkable yardstick for determining if an action was moral, said, moral actions, he explained, are those that protect and preserve innocent life. That life should trump an ideology, no matter how virtuous that ideology sounds, is a and that is a powerful principle. And then a little further down at the end of the second paragraph, um, the, the question is no less controversial. If I have a set of values that are guiding my decision-making, how do I know they are the right ones for me? And I, I've, this was very interesting to me because um, I, I'm someone that actually grew up in a very, very strict background. Uh, someone that um, almost 
uh, cultish, you could say. And so growing up as a child who, who has not had the opportunity to examine his values, um, you know, I, I, I would question, uh, I'm being told that this is the truth. This is the, these are the right values, uh, to purport. And yet I'm seeing that some people are being hurt by the ideologies that we are championing. So this chapter is very important because for people that are being, you know, it could be even be a teenager or, or someone young, uh, like I was, they're trying to determine their place in the world. They're trying to determine the values that they have. And it's like, well, I've been taught one way. How do I know on a fundamental level personally, what, what those values should be? Um, And then, so on uh, page 99, um, second paragraph, it says, great teachers tell us that the true knowledge lies within. We already know, and all the teacher can do is remove impediments from our realization. What is a sign of our knowing? It is our feeling. Feelings connect us to reality. Computers can't feel, but humans can. All wisdom traditions point to our feelings as a North Star for guidance. Um, <laughs> so I, I would love to hear a little bit more about about these feelings, um, especially uh, I, I grew up as someone um, being taught that logic is the only way to go. So personally, I would love to hear more about why feelings are so important. You know, it's kind of interesting. We have, we've grown up in a time where people have juxtaposed logic and feeling as two opposite ends of the spectrum. And people even associate them, you know, their their gender stereotypes around them as well. And I have just uh, found myself questioning the whole thing. It's like, uh, I come from a family of lawyers, okay? So we we don't have easy conversations at home. Some of them, my mom has a degree in philosophy and my dad is a lawyer, my sister is a lawyer. And yet, growing up, feelings were extremely important to us. And so I didn't have that bifurcated view of logic and feeling. It's like, you have to be logical towards towards the situation. And at the same time, your feelings are not an enemy of logic. They power your logic. Your logic has to stand on that foundation of what you feel is real. That is how, uh, that, that, that is actually a pretty important part of my worldview. And going back one one of the papers i remember reading from my professor uh, he he had founded the field in 1965 and sometime in the 80s he wrote another paper called an assessment of decision analysis and he used the example of uh, buddha and, and socrates and he, and he said that the, the remarkable thing about the buddha was he would dissect everything you know very very analytically And at the same time, his heart was full of compassion. And these two things went hand in hand. You know, it's it's not that if you go towards feelings, you have to sacrifice logic. It's quite the opposite. It's it's as you are connecting more and more to reality, logic is extremely important to to cut out the BS, as as one would say, and, and focus on what's truly there. And at the same time, if you do not have feelings, logic can be very dangerous because it's, it can be very dry. It can, it can disconnect you from what's really there. So the two are required if one is to make progress and evolve in life. I don't see them as, as enemies. I see them as uh, really integral parts of our lives. It's like, the, is your heart more important than your kidney? <laughs> we would be in deep trouble if one of them stopped working. Right. <laughs> they're, all, they're all very important for keeping the body going. Um, and I, and I guess, and you made some good points too, talking about that integration of logic and emotion. Um, and I, and I, and I guess it could go either way. Like, uh, people place so much emphasis on logic, 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 but it could also be emotion, emotion, emotion. Um, uh, and, and 99 halfway through you said, however, what if we are feeling inspired about things like racial superiority 
or sick in our stomach about our weight that doesn't seem to go any further down, or the face that stares back at us in the mirror for not being beautiful enough. Our feelings can take us in dangerous directions. What norms can we rely on to know which way is up? And then um, down bottom of 99, a reminder of caution is in order before we proceed any further. All the frameworks in this book are for individuals to assess and connect deeper with themselves. The same frameworks can turn dangerous if used to judge others. So I think this is a very important introduction because it is, it's basically saying that, you know, we need both logic and emotion. We can't go too far on either side. We need to be able to use both to evaluate, um, you know, what decisions we should be making. Um, so that, that's, that's very important um, before we proceed further. Um, I'm going to be getting into the story about the boy who lived for Germany, but if is there anything you want to say before I get into that section? So I think this is this is a really juicy question that you've asked, and in in some sense, the goal here is to upgrade our logic, not disregard feelings right the the part that is very problematic about how logic has developed in our times is it's to exclude feelings it's to think that's what makes us weak and it's to disconnect us from what we feel as extremely real and 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 the best we've done is we've made peace with it we've, we've tolerated it so you will find scientists say things like, oh, subjective feelings are extremely important. Yes, uh, let's keep that there. Oh, and by the way, just don't bring that into science. <laughs> and and I, I'm like, okay, that's a, you know, if you think about it, that's an extremely condescending attitude, which, which precludes any knowledge development that is integrative. And what I'm doing is I'm rebelling against that position. I'm saying no our logic needs to get upgraded to have a more holistic view of life and to include and incorporate feelings in a constructive, principled way. And we are gonna talk about what those principles might be and the scientific foundation of those principles. That's the rebellion that you're seeing in this book. So that is at the heart of the matter. So now we get into the story of the boy who lived for Germany, taking place in 1925 Munich uh, in a German middle school so the teacher walked into the class and nodded. The class stood up and took the oath they recited daily before beginning lessons. I was born to die for Germany. As they took their seats, the teacher noticed that one boy was still standing. They locked eyes and the boy found his voice. I think I was born to live for Germany, he said. This was a peculiar statement to make in the Germany of 1925. The nation had lost the First World War six years prior. There was a great sense of humiliation due to the treatment given to Germany and a strong sense of nationalism. To go against the nationalist sentiment of being ready to sacrifice one's life for the country was no small thing, especially for a 15-year-old. And then the, the basically the story goes on. The, the teacher wants the boy to write an essay um, on his statement, being very surprised. Uh so it reminded me very much of, you know, something that a society has declared it almost as a norm. It's something that we take for granted. It's the equivalent of saying the Pledge of Allegiance or something. And we don't even really think about where some of um, the things that we do uh, may even come from. It could be something as simple as, you know, why are our classes in high school 45 minute blocks instead of 90 minute blocks? It's, it's just, we just take it for granted. We don't think about the reasons behind it, the logistics behind it. Um, but then all of a sudden someone challenges the notion behind it. They challenge the origins of it and all of a sudden, it's making people think. I would imagine that this young boy, when he said that, all his classmates were probably like, you know, why are you bucking against the norm? But yet he is trying to make a greater point, which comes out later on 
Um, the boy ended up being someone named Robert S. Hartman, who made it his life goal to study values and come up with a scientific way to prevent the horrific decisions of the kind that is now synonymous with the Nazi era. And so, although his classmates were probably saying, you know, why are you bucking against the norm? Um, maybe just sit down. Uh, why are you questioning anything? Um, questioning our values, questioning where we are getting certain norms from is actually very important, um, even on a society level. Um, so it, it even goes greater than just uh, the self, but also um, inspiring others, going back to one of the aphorisms of the previous chapter. Um, so with this story, uh, is that kind of what you were going for? Um, kind of like the inspiration of others, or were there more that we should glean from this story? Well, well, I think the it, it's not just questioning the norm, but it's also the content of that story, right? It's it's about death. What are you willing to die for? And a pledge made by a country or made uh, or imposed by the state like this one makes you not think twice about the precious gift of life. I think that's what Hartman was reacting to as a, as a child. And this story or this experience made him think very hard. And, and especially, like, he probably wouldn't have thought so hard if the Nazi Holocaust had not happened, right? But it did happen. And, and a lot of people have thought very hard about, well, what could, be, could have been done to prevent this? And Hartman's own contribution to that conversation was there had to be a principled scientific way of knowing that what you're valuing doesn't make sense. And that's what he dedicated his life's work to. That's the foundation. It, it's called, it's a field called formal axiology that developed because of his contribution. So this is, the, is a pretty pivotal set of distinctions in the book which uh, I'll be referring to as we get into later chapters, but this is the foundation and, and it's, it's a little bit heavy. That's why it's, it's coming in chapter three, but it is also, you know, when you simplify it and you think about it, like, oh my God, this is actually simple. And once you accept it, it gives you a yardstick without being judgmental to say, hey, what are the axioms of value that make my values valid? If you challenge any axioms, the field cannot follow. But if you accept the axiom, a whole field of thought emerges from it. And we've never had this. What are the axioms of value? This is, this is a profound contribution to human thinking. And, and, the, and the seed of that conversation was in that story. That's why that story is included in the book. And, I, and I'm, very, um, I'm very interested in those, those simplified, um, you know, way of discovering someone's value and everything because you know there are some heavy uh topics being brought up that you know at first glance it, it seems like what is the answer to it um on page 103 it says hartman remembered a berlin newspaper's editorial early in the first world war uh we still remain a people of 65 million a hundred thousand corpses, more or less, matter nothing. That's based, That's what the editorial said. Hartman notes, Germany lost in the First World War 1,808,545 dead, or 3% of her population. After the war, the birth rate made up for this loss in 6.4 years. Thus, it could be argued from a collective viewpoint, Germany lost nothing. But the individual casualty was a man, loved and loving, and his loss was irreplaceable. It was a life loss, a life wasted, dumped into a manhole. The state takes human life suppo supposedly to protect the whole, but is a human life of less value than a collective? Perhaps, I thought, in the true scale of values, the individual loss weighs more heavily than the supposed gain of the state. And I was like, oh my goodness, at first glance, uh, when he said that, I was like, I see where he's coming from, 
um, when he's talking about like, yes, uh, each person loss is uh, a tragedy. Each person loss is someone that was loved, um, someone that had a family. I'm sure there's ripple effects due to that loss. But to say that the individual loss weighs more heavily than the supposed gain of the state, um, I found myself questioning my own values and thinking, is that true? Um, so what d- did you have the same reaction when you came across this? Hartman's work takes a little bit of soak time. It took me some time to appreciate the profundity of what he was doing. So the way you have to read these lines is he's actually giving you the axiom or the foundation, the desiderata, or the principles behind its framework. He's going to come up with a framework in the next few pages where this principle is going to be true, that the individual life lost will trump any ideological count of some glory. Right? You know, oh, we, we won a war with only 500 people dead. <laughs> no, I, but the moment you say one life is lost, in his mathematics, he's going to create that mathematics in, a, in, in just a bit. That one life loss is going to be greater, much greater value than any of the, you know, the statistics that you have around, um, you know, oh, the, you know, so the ideology went forward or whatever it is, the collective glory of the state. All of those will get trumped. That's the mathematics he's building up towards. At least that's how the chapter is set up. So this is the foundation. What if you could have such a mathematics? What would that mean? Yeah, and um, it, you know, and things definitely gets more complicated when you start looking beyond simple numbers, uh, reducing a, a person to a number. Um, I thought something that was very interesting that I've never come across was when it was talking about um. Uh, the story a friend shared with you of a German elder born right after the Second World War. Um, They're basically talking about how there was a generation of boys who lost connection with their fathers. Um, their generation was known as the generation of lost fathers because they never discussed the Holocaust with their children. And so the, these children had a had the history of the Holocaust. So they had some idea of what had happened, but yet when they asked their, the people that had lived through it, the, that the Germans that lived through it, they didn't want to talk about it. Um, and so they kind of learned about the horrors of the Holocaust through a different generation, through, um, older men at pubs and things that would start, start talking about it. And at home, it was never really brought up. And it, it, it's kind of interesting because it, it had nothing to do, per se, with, with the death of, of someone. It had more to do with just like the aftermath of such a horror and how human life is far more complicated than the number. So, I, I, I mean, I, w- I would love to hear a little bit more about, the, about this story from your perspective. So it goes on to say that it's not just, you know, when you, when you win a war, when you kill somebody, it's not just that you've won a war or you've achieved your military objective. What we're now learning is that has a profound effect on the mental health of the people doing the killing. And, and that's something that we're learning about in this country that uh, they all, uh, you know, we, we have severe cases of PTSD and it does something to your to your mind. Your people struggle, really struggle. So the suicide rates are very high of people coming back from a war because they're not able to relate back to society the way they used to be before the war. And it's it's something we're still learning about. It's it's uh, it, it, the ancient wisdom traditions will say that it changes you as a person, and and not necessarily for the better. So it's something we have to pay attention to that, hey, life is sacred. And if we are not treating it as such, it does something. Of course, there are the victims, right? They have, they've paid the ultimate price. But those who are left behind 
including those who seem to be in a position of power, they also suffer in ways that are truly very tragic. And so nobody wins, basically, is the moral here, I think. We, so there's a, there's a big reason why we should be very worried. You know, the Nazi era is great because it was so extreme. It, it's great for, for teaching moments. But we're doing this every day when we talk about population statistics, right? Right after that story is this whole thing of the pandemic. And we look at, oh, you know, this place, they only lost 500 people. Meanwhile, here we lost 10,000 people. Oh, that's pretty bad. So we, we do these reductions all the time. It's not just the Nazis. We do it. You and I do it. Good people do it. And, and, we're, and we've set up entire professions to do it. This is called population statistics, right? And what we don't realize is that's what we're doing. We're reducing a rich human life to a single number. Okay. I want us to be sensitive about that. Yes. Yes. On, on uh, page 105, it says, when we reduce a single human life to a metric, in this case, the number one, we're actually trivialize, trivializing death and rendering ourselves immune to the invaluable nature of human life. In doing so, we lose a big part of our own humanity and shape a world that is less sensitive to human suffering and more prone to causing suffering. And in the aphorism 3.0, one life loss is a loss too much. And so that builds um, that foundation as we really get into numinous values. Um, So based on Hartman's axioms of value, he, he talks about three different values. On page 106, he talks about intrinsic values. These are valuable in and of themselves and define upon life itself. My example, my life, others' lives. There's extrinsic or practical values. These are a means to an end and defined upon behaviors or actions that have some reality in the physical world. For example, brushing teeth, a beneficial action that has a reality in the physical world. And then there's system systemic values. These are defined upon artificial constructs like clear rules or metrics. These constructs have no reality in the physical world. Example, a rule to brush teeth twice a day is something that exists only in our head. This is a system systemic value that tells us clearly if we have brushed twice or not. And so we are going to be getting into these three values that Hartman developed and really diving into um, the differences between them. Um, I'd love for you to uh, expound on them a little bit before we get even further, if that's okay. Yeah, so this Hartman called it the dimensions of value. There are three dimensions. And if you think about it, this is also a hierarchy of richness. Intrinsic values are extremely rich because they are defined as life itself. And extrinsic is something that's separable, something that's a means to an end. And systemic is defined as objective constructs. Right? These, are, these are no reality. These are just thoughts, distinctions. And these are axioms, meaning the wrong question to ask is, is, is the world this way? Because mathematics... If you think about it, all of mathematics is axiomatic. There is no math in nature, right? There's math in our head in how we process and see nature. And we organize those thoughts. That's how mathematics works. It's a normative discipline that you have to learn. These are norms. And the validity for mathematics comes from, hey, if you accept these axioms, then everything else follows. And then we ask ourselves, this new thing that somebody is proposing, is it consistent with the axioms? If it's not consistent, then you have to ask yourself, what other <laughs> axioms are there that are needed here? And if, if you can't answer that question, then the contribution isn't valid, or at least there's no way to establish valid validity. And this is quite different from physics. Physics is a descriptive science, right? And, and there the validity comes from, is the world truly so? through observation. And if it's not so, you cannot claim an advancement in physics. 
So that's a very important difference. So what we're doing here is we're making a normative advance, not a descriptive advance. We're not saying the world works like this, but we're saying that, hey, if we take these norms as the foundation, certain interesting things become possible. And if we choose to accept these axioms, we can then have a yardstick of validity saying, hey, we're being inconsistent with these axioms. Axioms are a fancy word for principles. If you accept these principles, then we're not behaving in a manner that's consistent with these principles. So what it is really doing is depersonalizing a very uh, important conversation and saying, you, I, you know, I don't suck as a human being if I'm being inconsistent. I just have a neutral language to examine that inconsistency and think about, do I want to continue being inconsistent or do I want to change it? So, and so think of it as when you're helping a friend, do you want to say your values suck? Or would you rather say, hey, let's try these axioms for size and let's just test, is it, are we being consistent with those axioms? And if we do, if we do accept those axioms, so you can see that they, these are very different conversations, right? That one is a very personal judgment and the other is a, a sort of a scientific exploration, which lowers the temperature of the conversation, keeps it in the learning space and makes it, makes it more introspective. Right. It's kind of, yeah, it's like taking your time to actually explore together, um, you know, what, where is, where are these decisions and values coming from instead of just judging outright, like you are right or you're wrong. Um, and so it really starts to get into, uh, what we value and how we value things. Um, before we get into what Hartman, uh, was saying about what we value and how we value, um, on the top of page 108, uh, it says systemic values are least in richness for they have a black and white nature to them. Uh, this doesn't mean that they're, they're bad, uh, doesn't mean that they're right, but we, it's, it's trying to make it far more simple than, um, it can be We're we're basically, uh, should it does do these values actually add to the intrinsic portion of your life? And so we have to keep that in mind. And then when Hartman really gets into breaking down the values, uh, the three dimensions of value, uh, toward the bottom for intrinsic valuation, it says, and this is inseparable from who we are. We fully identify with the irreplaceable uniqueness of what is being valued. For extrinsic, practical valuation, it's separable from self. We are not what is being valued, although we may express a desire for what is being valued. These lie in the realm of everyday desires. And systemic valuation, farthest distance from the self, strongest sense of separation. These lie in the realm of objectivity. So basically, based on all three dimensions of value, we're trying to get closer to the self as possible. It kind of goes back to the previous chapter when it talks about, um, you know, is it inspiring others? Is it, is it, there's, there's a different component than just pure logic or someone telling you like this is right or wrong. There has to be some kind of marriage to how you are feeling also about that decision on the inside, that lightness. When, so when we're talking about the intrinsic valuation, um, it's to me, I mean, we, we haven't gone through the rest of this chapter yet, but to me, it seems that defining uh, that intrinsic valuation is most important, or am I wrong about that? Yeah, so think of it this way. The, the axioms or the principles give you the definition of the categories and the valuation is about the psychological aspect of it. So these three land in very different ways in how we perceive them. So, so let's use the examples, right? So the example of toothbrushing that we've used in previous chapters. When you decide to brush your teeth twice a day, that's a clear objective rule. And so by definition of the principles, which, which 
value category is this? What would you say? Based on the brushing of the teeth? Yeah. The, the count of how many times you've brushed, which value is this? Intrinsic, extrinsic, or systemic? Systemic, I would think. Right. Absolutely. So because it's absolutely objective, it's black and white, right? It's a construct. That's the definition of it. Right. And the psychological aspect of it is pretty much nothing. Like there's no emotion attached to this. So, so systemic valuation is completely objective, is as objective as possible. There's no emotional connection with who you are. But then the reason this, this metric is so useful is because it gets you to brush. The action of brushing is real. It has a physical reality, right? So which value category would you put this one in? Intrinsic, extrinsic, or systemic? Um, the actual brushing, um, I would say extrinsic. Yeah, that's right. Because extrinsic values have a physical reality, that by definition, right? And extrinsic valuation or the way the psychological affect lands is it's separable from who you are. It's not a part of your identity. You're brushing your teeth, right? It's useful. It's it's in the uh, it's in the realm of everyday desires, as the phrase is here, right? Yes, I want to brush, clean up my teeth. That's a good thing to do. It's useful, right? And that's useful because it's getting you towards dental health, which you know, as a, as a physical reality, is very important. You don't want your gums to be hurting or bleeding, or your teeth to be decaying. So that's great. But then that leads to my well-being. And my well-being has, has a very strong reality to it, right? Which you feel, if you don't have well-being, you know you don't have well-being, it's real. And that matters because your life matters. And when you get to your life, which is, you know, this is a diagram on page 107, my life by definition is intrinsic value, right? Up until that point, even my well-being, if that's off, that's still a utility thing. I'm going to the doctor, oh, it's painful. You know, if I have issues, I can't get things done. I'm, I'm still in the realm of practical life being difficult. But then that matters because of my life itself. And I don't have to give you any further justification than that. What, what the definition is doing is saying intrinsic doesn't need justification. It is declared as life itself. And my life is intrinsically valuable. And how I experience it in the valuation category is inseparable from who I am. I, I you know, if, if I experience something intrinsically, I am seeing it as me. I can't separate it. And that's the richest dimension. Like you cannot possibly articulate what it means to you. And by the way, if you can articulate it, it's not intrinsic. Ooh. Because it is so rich that you will fail to articulate. Remember the, the in, in chapter zero, we talked about this is a realm where mind and speech returns having been defeated. That's the realm we're talking about. Mm. And you will know this because you feel it, you're emotional, you can, you know, people I've seen strong vibrations, people, people will shake, shudder, cry when they're feeling this, but they right. feel it and they cannot explain it. That's what we're talking about here. That's an intrinsic valuation. Oh, wow. and, and what this is, right? And so now, now you see what a powerful framework this is saying, Okay, are you intrinsically valuing that which is an intrinsic value or that which is a systemic value? So for instance, if you go back to the Nazi example, they had racial superiority. So let's use the framework. What is racial superiority amongst the three value categories in the definitions, intrinsic, extrinsic, or systemic? <laughs> oh man, um, it sounds systemic. Right. It's a rule, right? Either right. you have this race or you don't. It's black and white. Yeah. And what do you think the Nazis were evaluating this as? Like what in psychologically the, the affect on them? Was this a part of the identity intrinsic or was this just a utility thing extrinsic? Or was this just objective systemic? Um I, my I, I could be wrong, but I would think that 
a, a good deal of them were using it as a uh and like almost like a, a uh, extrinsic i would think well they, they had some of them yeah. were doing like some were doing extrinsic and some were doing intrinsic depending on depending on how they they were facing the situation um so, right. my, so my, they, they, yeah 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 so so you could say when they are when they're going um you know when, when they're launching all these campaigns right uh these concentration camps there was an extrinsic extrinsic dimension around it that hey this is how we're going to get organized if you belong to that race we're going to do some really bad things to you that's that's the extrinsic piece of it and then they're counting they're keeping meticulous meticulous counts of everything they've done they were very well organized but there was an intrinsic dimension to this the racial superiority the way it was felt it was a part of the identity it fueled the whole thing and so the valuation category here is they were taking something that was systemic an ideology and they were valuating as though it were a part of who they were oh. and that's what we mean by an intrinsic valuation of a systemic value and so if you were to see you know let's say you and i were in this situation and we're like oh you know hey that sounds like hartman's given us the category it's a systemic value now why am i making this a part of my identity is that what i want to be doing you know i have a way right. of teaching and critiquing it and, and by the way this is infinitely more constructive than saying the person who did this is evil or a monster there are a large number of people um in the world who believe the nazis were evil okay and while you're totally welcome to have that view that viewpoint makes it impossible to learn from what happened there because you we human beings don't learn from evil you know because we believe that we cannot be evil and therefore there's nothing right. that evil can <laughs> teach us right and that is extremely dangerous position because the people in nazi germany were professionals they were engineers doctors teachers they were people like you and me by making them evil we have made it impossible for us to learn from them and so i feel like this is a very important corrective that hey wait a second you and i are making the same mistakes maybe not to the same degree but every day we make these mistakes and we better become sensitive about this you know and, right. and here's a framework that allows us to do that in a low temperature way you know in a healthy way in a friendly way right and 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 you made a good point there too because i mean that literally what a lot of how a lot of wars are are started or how a lot of um tri you know tribal warfare or you know things of that nature or even in Nazi Germany they reduced a different population to an other like a lesser than mm. them and mm. that is essentially what people who are saying that okay so they're they're just pure evil and that's that because I'm good and they're bad you're you're essentially reducing other human beings to an other you're you're reducing them to a metric <laughs> without actually evaluating uh you know how did they got to that point because if you're not evaluating how they got to that point then people like you and me could eventually you know get get to something maybe not to that extreme but like you know like you were saying we're we're doing we might do things that aren't that are um the antithesis to our intrinsic values you know we we just start going more with what is uh systemic and so yeah 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 and we and we do this all the time by the way i mean it's anytime you've done population statistics you have violated the axioms and by the way that's every one of us but <laughs> we 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 live in a world of data science right now in in case we haven't noticed right where we're constantly dealing with counting. And so this, this uh, concern is bigger than it has ever been in humanity, in humanity's history. Yeah, like on, on page 109, when it says return, uh, the aphorism 3.3 uh, and 3.4, return to the concept behind the construct, return to the reality behind the concept. You know, it's like, don't just take things that, like face value um really evaluate where that value is coming from why do we value it 
how are we valuing it? Things of that nature. Um, you know, in, in, in going back to uh, Krishna's story, on the top of page 110, going back to Krishna's story, we can see that Kaushika was counting systemically, and he had upheld his ideology of truth-telling over the actual unique and irreplaceable lives of those who ultimately perished at the hands of the robbers. And so, you know, looking at that, you might say, oh, well, he did the right thing because he did not lie. Uh, one of the one of the laws in even some religions or um, ideologies is that, you know, lying is, you know, we, it's terrible. It's awful. It's, it's sinful. It's, we, we even um, uh, make a big deal about it with children. Like you do not lie, you know? And yet, and he, he upheld that, but yet upholding that also cost the lives of other people. So then it becomes, was that really the moral thing to do? Was that really the right thing to do? <laughs> it, going down a little further on 110. Um, can, can I pause you there a little bit? I, I think that's yes. a really interesting one. And I have uh, in the past had these lovely conversations with my uh, professor of decision analysis, who also is a professor of ethics and, and cited the book Ethics for the Real World in various places in this book. And we would talk about this particular one that, hey, you know, what what do you do if you, you is there a way in which you can tell the whole truth? And his answer would be, yeah, wh why would this person say, I'm going to tell you whether where the innocent people are hiding? They, there are so many alternatives, such as I'm not in the business of helping murderers. You do your dirty work yourself. Oh, well, then the, the, these robbers might kill you. Well, you should be prepared because there's no good that's going to come out of it anyway. Why would you have somebody else perish? So, so we, we would have these conversations, and then, um, and then he, you know, and the thing that's interesting about this is there are many ways to tell the whole truth, right? And we've picked one which is convenient to us in this case. Kaushika has picked one, which is like, oh yeah, they're right there. But if you really think about it, that's not the only choice this person had, right? And, and of course, the professor would come up with wise ones like, there's nobody here who shouldn't be here, right? And, and others would say, <laughs> oh, that's a, you know, a, a smart ass answer. If you said that, they would check and find these people. So sure, you can, you can go back and forth on that, but there's a whole spectrum of ways of telling the whole truth. And in fact, if we, if we really dig deep, we find that whenever we have, uh, taken the lazy way out, it's because we have compromised uh, ourselves in some way. We, we've gotten attached to this heavenly reward of truth telling, of whatever comes because you do that. Instead of looking at the bigger truth that, hey, I don't have to tell, I don't have to say anything. Even if I keep my mouth shut in front of the robbers, I would, be, I would not have violated my principle of always tell the truth. Why did I have to open my mouth? Right. True. Who said that? Right. So there, there's a spectrum there, and, and that's uh, that's that's a juicy bit. Uh, I haven't explained that in this story, but it is there. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, it didn't have to be just one thing or the other. But I guess, yeah. I guess that's what happens when you're relying only on uh, systemic values. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's very one way or the other. It, you're not yeah. thinking about all the other ways that it could it could work out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, going down a little further on uh, 110 says uh, for those of us who have an intuitive sense of what preserves and protects life, we don't need the rational support, but it is precisely this sense that is lacking in sociopaths. Just so you don't think that sociopaths are those people out there on a different planet. Sociopathy is a spectrum. The higher up we go in organizational leadership, the more sociopathic we tend to get because of the larger exposure we have to abstractions. You can check if you are getting into a sociopathic mindset by noting whether you prefer to people as resources or pride yourself in being able to optimize your time. When somebody asks for your time, do you say, sorry, I don't have time because in your head you have done a benefit cost analysis and there isn't much benefit to giving time to this individual? Or, 
In your drive up to work, do you find yourself feeling annoyed at the traffic accident that has now added an hour to your commute? In Hartman's framework, these would be extrinsic valuations of intrinsic values. And I wanted, I wanted to bring that, that paragraph up to basically kind of like what we were talking about with the whole uh, people being evil, so therefore there's no way that I am part of that portion of humanity. <laughs> it's like, you know, we these kind of little things affect us all, even on a, you could say, microscopic level. Uh, something as simple as, you know, evaluating time, um, things of things like that. Uh, I found it interesting when it was talking about the higher up we go in organizational leadership, more sociopathic we tend to get, larger exposure uh, to abstractions. That's it's, that's very interesting to me as well. It's almost like the more um, systemic it gets you know, the less we are connected to humanity and in a way ourselves, I guess. Um, and it, and it, I, I have, I have heard um, of, uh, you know, um, it's kind of like the more people that are around um, like the heart, the harder it is for uh, that, like that community to find their values things of that nature it's like it's like if there was like a community of two you could find your values pretty easy if it's three it gets a little harder if it's 20 100 so on and so forth and so <laughs> this requires a lot of work uh even on an individual level let alone a organizational level <laughs> that, that's a really good uh good thing to point out uh yes <laughs> um but yeah, so when we get into uh, more into what is numin what are numinous values, as we get into numinous values, there uh, on the pay top of page one twelve, it says there is something very special that seems to be happening in the Sholi example from chapter zero. Why did the four packaging traits, safe, natural, economic, and sustainable, feel so special to Sholi's management team and the rest of the company? They seem to be of an extrinsic nature. Each of them is a practical idea. Perhaps it is because they are the closest extrinsic value that connected Sholi's employees to the intrinsic value of life itself. So, so that's interesting. So even if it's an extrinsic value, if you get it as close as possible to that intrinsic value, it's almost like it, it's good enough. No, so so think of it this way, right? I'm I'm going to use a metaphor. So as you get close to the sun, you get warm, right? And if you're further away from the sun, you get colder and colder, right? So there's something special about you know when when you're really close to the sun, it's imbued by the warmth of the sun, and and you see certain and, and light and 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 that quality is what I'm calling numinous that you're getting close to the sanctity of life itself. And it, it's like, if you take objects near the sun and you touch them, they're going to be really hot, right? It's not that they have their own warmth. They're, they're channeling the warmth of the sun and they have some of those properties. So think of it that way. And so these are extrinsic values, like safe, natural, economic, and sustainable. But because they're so close to that sense of the sanctity of life, that these values, they dance, they have this numinosity, which means they are inspiring. And these are the values we want to find because they are the bridge values. They are the values which take us, they, which root us in the world of doing and connect us to the world of being. If you were just in the world of being, life is sanctified, life is great, sacred. Okay, so what? What am I going to do with it? And if you were just in the world of doing, I'm doing, 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 it has no connection to life. And numinous values are your bridge. They are in the world of doing, they are practical. And yet they're so close to the sense of sanctity that they have a sanctification of their own. Like you feel it. This, this work is not just work, it is sacred work for you. That's what this is about. Mm. Very interesting. 
Very interesting. Yeah, because a little down bottom on 112 says, we are now ready to define numinous values as those extrinsic values that connect us uniquely to life itself. And in so doing, give a numinous identity to our work and make it meaningful. Aphorism 3.5 says, the practical becomes numinous when it uniquely connects us to life. Ooh, so... That's very interesting. Uh, for in it on uh, one thirteen, it says in the fundraiser example of chapter two, percentage participation is a systemic value that immediately connects us to the intrinsic value of our unique life. When that a little further down, when that feeling is established, I'm ready to get into the land of extrinsic values by taking behaviors that support the numinous value of community, namely supporting the fundraiser with my resources. So that percentage participation talking about when they were like, uh, you know, we just want 100% participation. It doesn't matter how much you give. That tapped into that intrinsic value. It, 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 It was something that was outside of the self, but it connected uniquely to life. And, um, you know, that, that's beautiful. Are there other examples that you can think of that could help us find th- those in, uh, numinous values? Oh, the, the, finding the numinous values will be the topic of the next three chapters. That They're deep explorations. But examples, there are many. And in fact, uh, uh, the, the very next story with which this chapter ends is a, is a good you know, anti-hero example of this. But I'll say that, you know, the, the word that I want to emphasize is uniquely connects us. It's unique because you you will find other people not getting that sense of sacredness from what you feel is sacred. And in fact, the, the way in which other people will feel the sacredness is when you are activated by it, your inspiration is what inspires others as opposed to the content itself. So that's the beauty of this. A lot of people here are not inspired by plastic, but the community of people at that company are. And, and, and the reason they are inspired is because it allows them to serve life. That is inspiring to me, and it makes me look at plastic in a whole different way. And the same is true about the school, where you are now looking at percentage participation, the numinous met- the metric, and it's driving the numinous value of community. Community inspires me. And, and the thing is community and education is a very unique thing here. And so I'm now inspired to engage and, and give my resources to what is a very practical concern. Like, hey, if you don't have money, you can't run the show. It's simple, right? But that's not inspiring to me. And, and, and the other piece of this is numinous values and we, we, we talked about this, I think, uh, in the previous chapter, that numinous values is the layer below numinous metrics. And, and these are both input and output metrics because they're input because it organizes your work and they're output because what they're giving you, the numinous value underlying it, underlying the metric, is an end in itself. Community is an end in itself. Yes, I want to feel that sense of community in the school. And, and yes, I want um, you know life to be protected, preserved. These numinous values of safe, natural, economic, and sustainable. These are ends, and not not money, not how much shareholders are making. These are the ends, and so this is very powerful. When you figure out that your means and your ends are one and the same, that's a pretty important finding if you can find it. Mm, and and finding it sometimes is the uh, the difficult part, but once you find it, it, it seems as if it changes everything um, in that arena of, of where you're working. So going in, into our anti-hero story, um, it's talking about the, uh, Lieutenant General Richard P. Mills of the U.S. Marine Corps. He was a keynote speaker, and he was describing to a group of decision analysts how he and his team had arrived at a metric to judge success in the U.S. war in Afghanistan. Um, and so he was saying, he was saying 
Counting bodies of the enemies we've killed was not an effective metric because their replacement pool was very large. The number of Afghan soldiers and police officers we trained and put in the field also felt like an imprecise metric. After rejecting many metrics, he finally shared the one they settled on, the number of female children who go to school. Um, which, when I first read that, I was like, interesting. It's almost like as soon as he said it, I knew where he was going with it. But it, it was like, wow, what? I didn't, I didn't think of that. Um, and then when someone asked to repeat that, uh, Mill said, it is only when a community feels safe that they allow their children to go to school. And it is only when they, we have crossed another level in their confidence that they allow their girls to go to school. It goes on to say the Taliban blew up the school that the U.S. Marines built not once but seven times. The Marines responded by rebuilding the school eight times. The last time it was rebuilt, they stayed put to ensure that it would not be destroyed again. Very interesting. Yeah, so Mill's metric of counting how many girls went to school is a great example of a numinous metric. It illustrates how he connected to the numinous value of peace. Peace was his unique way of connecting to the sanctity of life. I think I thought this was very beautiful because obviously he is a general. He is dealing with soldiers. He is dealing in war, and war um, is violent and bloody, and people die. So how in the world do you find value of any kind within that that sphere? But yet they were able to, you know, find their own value. And they were, they were like, you know, we can, even though we are taking human life, um, we can do something in which, you know, we're finding some kind of unique uh, quality that is connected to life through this. It's very interesting. It really went back to the uh, Batosai example in the beginning of the book for me. Um, and on the bottom of 117, it says, one may still grimace at the fact that the U.S. Army was taking lives in a war that many U.S. citizens didn't agree with, although much of that sentiment had changed with the incidents following the U.S. military withdrawal. So, um, but, so you know, you also have um, outside citizens, um, kind of like uh, the ones that that aren't necessarily experiencing the full effect of it, they might look at it, well, it's just bad. It's just wrong. It's just evil what uh, the that military is doing. But for those people, they have to actually find their own intrinsic values, their own numinous values. Um, it's So everyone is, I find it interesting because everyone is in a different stage. Um, there's not just the military, but there is the judicial branches. There's Congress, there's you know, the politicians, there's the people that elect the politicians. There's the people who don't vote at all. There's that everyone is in a different area in which we all must find our numinous values. Um, so that, that I find is very interesting. And so that's why this book is so important because it's really um, even though it's using examples that may be outside of our wheelhouse or something that we may experience, it's bringing it back to the self and making us think about what we need to find within ourselves to reach our own numinous values. Um, on 118, it says, if a samurai or a general can find a way to honor the sanctity of life when their jobs are around taking life, don't you think it's possible for us to value life at our day jobs? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and so um, I would imagine you think that it is possible, of course. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm very optimistic. Very optimistic. I mean, if they were able to find it, surely, surely we can. Um, uh, before I go into the questions for reflection, is there anything else you wanted to say on this chapter in particular? Yeah, this is really the launch pad, right? We've now covered a lot of ground in, in these podcasts and these chapters. 
where we are ready to begin that conversation with ourselves. So these distinctions are really important. I would definitely encourage the listeners to listen to the questions you're about to read out and, and to do some journaling on this. What is coming up for them? We're preparing the ground for that really intimate conversation with the self. Excellent. And with that being said, I'm going to read the questions for reflection. Number one, what did this chapter open up for you? Number two, identify some metrics that you care deeply about. And for each metric you identify, think about the following. Is this metric helping you to trivialize life or death? What is the underlying extrinsic value that makes this metric useful? Is that extrinsic value getting you any closer to an intrinsic value that respects uniqueness? Is this metric a numinous metric? Does it linearly connect you to intrinsic values through extrinsic behavior? Or does it break through all causal paths and connect you to your uniqueness, changing your behavior in the process? What do Hartman's axioms open up for you and your work? And in light of Hartman's axioms, what are the implications for population statistics of any kind? All very important questions that you should reflect upon. That will conclude chapter three of this podcast. Please join us next time for chapter four, the heart, finding your unique aliveness. Thank you very much for joining us. Take care.